0: I'm J.G. Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American empire and national security state operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things
1: work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on amazon.com,
0: Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax listeners. On this edition of the program, we have a double-feature edition of the show once again. Later on, we'll be speaking with Nick Cleveland-Stout and Tiller Jorno of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft about the latest revelations and updates in the scandals of the NSO group the Israeli firm responsible for the now-infamous Pegasus spyware. But first, we're going to be talking about Israel, Palestine, and propaganda with University of Massachusetts Amherst Professor of Communication Sut Jali and Roger Waters, the acclaimed musician from Pink Floyd. In 2016, Sut documentary, The Occupation of the American Mind, detailed ongoing pro-Israel public relations campaigns to downplay or dismiss the plight of Palestinians. Roger Waters provided the narration for that documentary. Most recently, Sut and Roger joined forces again to publish an article entitled The Smearing of Emma Watson, which dealt with the accusations of anti-Semitism lobbed at the popular Harry Potter star when she posted an image on social media featuring a Palestinian flag and the caption, Solidarity is a Verb. That was initially going to be the focus of our conversation. But with the recent release of the well-known human rights group Amnesty International's report arguing that Israel is practicing a form of apartheid against Palestinians, our conversation ended up taking a broader focus. I hope you'll enjoy the discussion we had, and let me tell you, Roger Waters is quite passionate about this topic and isn't afraid to state his thoughts. Also, just so you know, Sut Jali and Roger Waters will both be appearing in March at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. for the annual Israel Lobby Con. That's going to be on March 3rd. There are tickets available for attending In Real Life or Digitally by way of Zoom. The theme of this year's conference is Transcending the Israel Lobby at Home and Abroad, and in addition to Roger Waters and Sut other speakers will include CIA whistleblower John Kiriakou, Israeli journalist Gideon Levy, and Palestinian activist Hanan Ashrawi, among others. If that interests you, please visit israellobbycon.org for more information. And now, before we get to our conversation with Sut Jali and Roger Waters, award from one of our sponsors, namely the transmedia storyteller Joseph Matheny, known for his pioneering work with alternate reality games. Joseph has a new audio drama out entitled Zen, the Zen of the Other. And let me tell you, it is a mind bender. But don't take my word for it. I think you'll be able to tell by the following promo. Words make the walls that trick us into complying with stasis.
2: Zen. The Zen of the Other is a work that follows one man as he attempts to find his way through the jumble of modernity that envelops us all and threatens to strangle us in its tentacles longer than night. Call me Ezra. Names are not important. Cast into a world where the liminal overlaps the world of the paranormal philosophical speculation. The shadows, the void are all painted, oh magic of the deep dark night. Ezra Buckley struggling to keep his head above water long enough to pluck a jewel of wisdom from the crown of a four spirit. The very act of writing down the story in static form, carved into clay and hardened, was in itself an act of black magic in a world devoid of rites of passage Ezra finds himself on his own as he is confronted with the very real prospect of having a life-changing liminal experience in the woods of big sur if he can survive it back to zero which for me those days seemed like where the forces of nature wanted me to reside is it even real Is it the legendary watchers of Big Sur phenomena or something else? Zen is a work that confronts the questions of identity, modernity, life, the Other and the place for rites of passage in the modern world. Where mystery reigns supreme. Zen. The Zen of the Other. The audio play available now on digital.panicmachine.com Spotify, Deezer, Apple Music and your favorite streaming service.
0: Welcome to Parallax Views, such jolly of the University of Massachusetts Amherst and uh, Roger Waters, uh, known for his time as the frontman of Pink Floyd, how are you both doing today? Good.
3: Nice and grumble.
0: <laughs> so I wanted to have both of you on because I recently read uh, a piece you wrote in uh, Globetrotter entitled The Smearing of Emma Watson. And this was also carried by our good friends at Counterpunch. Uh, you've both done a lot of work on the oppression of Palestinians, including the great documentary, The Occupation of of the American mind. And uh, right now, things are really heating up. We are seeing uh, attacks on an Amnesty International report about uh, apartheid practices uh, against the Palestinians, especially in the occupied territories. I wanted to start with that. Where do you think we're uh, at with regards to the oppression of Palestinians and the reactions against this oppression? Uh, do you want to start, Set? Sure. I mean, I actually
1: think we're actually on the cusp of a kind of new moment. Um, I mean, the film that we did, you know, we did it in 2016. It was about Israeli, the, the propaganda of the, of the Israel lobby, not the Jewish lobby, the Israel lobby, which is very different than the Jewish lobby. Uh, and it's really talking about the power of the, of the Israel lobby. And I think what we've seen in the last since the Gaza war in, um, in, in last summer I think we've seen a break in that um, in that propaganda, um, and I think I think people are now starting to, as, as a result of I think social media, the the blockade that uh, Israel had had on information is slowly starting to break down. So I I think we're a new moment now. Um, I I don't want to get I don't want to I don't want to overblow it, <laughs> but I think there are some possibilities now that didn't exist even I think you know, a year ago.
0: Roger, how do you feel about where we're at right now? Because I'm very excited. I feel like a lot of younger people especially uh, are much more aware of these issues uh, than a lot of older generations.
3: Well, you're right. A lot more people are aware than, was it only five or six years ago that that sort made the uh, occupation of the American mind? And I think it's exactly right that... uh, Amnesty International coming out and writing. The, it's about three, the, the report, and but also them going public with the opinion that Israel is what it is, which is an apartheid state. Uh, and um, the fallout from that, which which I live in the United States, and so I'm watching all of this go on around me as we speak, and it's fascinating it's the level of panic uh in the but the emperor does have clothes camp ie the israeli lobby and also huge swathes of the 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 um politicians in the united states of america are still trying to pretend that this isn't happening so that, that i don't think there's been um there hasn't been a break in the propaganda. The propaganda is getting more and more and more intense. What there has been is a breakthrough by Sut Jahali and people like him and like me in dismantling the effect of that propaganda so that there is now a proper, open debate. People are going, I mean, the amnesty thing is huge. I think it's hugely important because, and it's what's causing them to panic. And it's re- it was really interesting to me this morning when I zipped through my emails this morning to see that, that um, Amnesty International, the German chapter of it, has removed all trace of it from their website, like yesterday. So they did sort of vaguely mention it, but because, I, you know, I toured, I've toured in Germany on a number of occasions and done gigs there since I made that film. And they, try, they do try and stop me from performing. The mayor of Munich said, you will never work in this city again. I'm sorry to put on a German accent. And I'm staying in a hotel and I'm looking down into the square where those motherfuckers burned all the books in 1933 or 34 or whenever it was. So it's really interesting how blind Germany is because of its gestalt guilt about the way the Jews were treated in the 1930s and 40s in Germany. But, yeah, so these are really interesting and, dare I say, exciting times if I was a Palestinian, I would be reading the paper and thinking, maybe, just maybe, you know, and look through the bottom drawer for the key and clutch it in my hand and go, maybe, maybe we're getting closer to that moment.
1: So can I, can I just say, it's not just the Amnesty International thing, it's also Human Rights Watch, it's also Bethlehem. Uh, I mean, the word uh, apartheid now, I, mean, I think this is where Israel is kind of losing the linguistic battle. Um, the, the Israeli, uh, one of the Israeli ambassadors, uh, I forget forget to which country, but said this coming year, twenty twenty two, the major debate we're going to have is whether Israel is an apartheid state. They said that that phrase, Israel is an apartheid state, that's going to that's going to frame. The discussion that we have, and everything they're doing now is in response to that. Who said that, sir? It was a. Uh, I, I, I got a, it, it. was an Israeli ambassador to somewhere, uh, or oh, an Israeli okay. spokespeople, spoke spokesperson. I'll, I'll, right. I'll send you the. I'll send you the person. But that—that's what he said. He said 2020, 2022 is going to be defined by this phrase.
3: Well, isn't it interesting? I said this on another webinar day before yesterday, I think, or something, and it was this. Um, what was it that I said? Yeah, I, definitions. They can't, what I said, oh, I said it in a tweet. They will not be able to change the definition of the international crime of apartheid. I don't believe they will. They have made great um, strides towards changing the definition of the words anti and semi. The IHRA definition that they've been trying, the propaganda machine, has tried, and to a great extent successfully, to sell to universities, to news outlets, to governments, to whatever, all over the world, which is bullshit, as we know. It's a complete, it doesn't make any sense at all. It's very Emperor's New Clothes, you know. Well, they can't do it with apartheid. Well, they may try, but I, I think they will fail in that endeavor. And part of the job that we all have to do is to reel back in the false definition of anti-Semitism, which brings us back to Emma, That is that that they have adopted from this strange, you know, uh, organisation. Don't know how it can probably fill me in on this. The International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, whatever that might be, and whoever they may be, because because people just say IHRA definition without think. Well, who are the IHRA and who? They, why do they get to rewrite Robert Johnson's dictionary? You know. So anyway, but
1: even um, even there. There are uh, uh, scholars of uh, Holocaust history and anti-Semitism that, is, that are broken from that. Um, some my colleagues there, I have a couple of colleagues at the University of Massachusetts and they, they put together an alternative way of thinking about this where they they've got like 200 people to sign on to this. So even within this there's a debate now. The, uh, you know, that definition is also under under threat. Yeah, and of I think, course it is. yeah well, well, right. I think it's up to us to essentially say look, you know, there is a battle around the linguistic stuff, and we have to we have to wage war in, in this. Like we have to we have to fight for the for the definitions, and not just allow these definitions you know to, to, to exist as they are. And I think that's what that's what's changing. That I think the, the Israel lobby is, is scared that they're they're on the they're losing that battle, especially as you said with 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 young people, but also with progressive Jews. Um, I mean, with with Jewish congregations, I was reading yesterday, there's a congregation, uh, a, J- a Jewish congregation that is having a vote now. Um, I forget where it is. It's having a vote now on whether they should define themselves not just as non-Zionist, but as anti-Zionist, that that is what is central to them as a Jewish congregation. This is, this is scaring the life out of him.
0: Yeah, I, I was going to say, I mean, uh, a few years ago now, we saw Peter Beinert, who is one of the you know, uh, most important, I would say, uh, Jewish commentators say, you know, I can't support uh, what Israel is doing. I mean, he basically seems to support a one state solution at this point, uh, one democratic state. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned uh, the Selim report because that's, that's an Israeli human rights group. And uh, what I wanted to get into was when we talk about the IHRA definition, what is their definition of anti-Semitism for those who may be unfamiliar with this.
1: Shall I well, worry the, if, uh, yeah, okay, um, so, go ahead? No, no, Roger,
3: you've, you've spoken about this more. So why don't you go ahead? Well, well, well. Basically, they wrote a new definition that that said that gave examples of acts that are anti-Semitic, and some of the examples that they gave were criticizing the policies of the state of Israel. They claim that that is an anti-Semitic act and should come on and should be called a hate crime, and should, which is clearly ludicrous. That's in a nutshell. That's,
1: that's what it is. Is that right? sir? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the, one of the major examples they gave of what anti-Semitism is, is criticizing the policies of the state of Israel.
0: <laughs> doesn't and, and that, doesn't that lead to not to interrupt you, sir? but doesn't that lead to sort of an erasure of Jewish <laughs> voices who criticize the policies of Israel? This is what this
3: is why we're here talking about Emma Watson, except that we're not. What interests me is where is Emma Watson? I haven't heard a sticky bird from out of her mouth. She, there's been absolutely nothing. There was that one photo with a poem written on it, with a lot of Palestinian flags in it, and that was that was sort of it, wasn't it? Is that it? Has I think
1: she- I haven't heard anything that she says. There's been lots of people that have supported her.
3: Yeah. But- but isn't it interesting that she hasn't said anything? I wonder why that is. And I mean, I'm not I, you know, if it ain't broke, you know, <laughs> don't try and fix it, I guess I would say, because it it has been a focal point for people like well, you you largely wrote the op-ed to which I you kindly asked me to attach my name and make the odd comment, which I did happily. Um, But so it has it it has been part of the struggle and it's important. But I'd I wish she was on this webinar, so we could go. Come on, then, girl. What do you think? You are the centre of this tiny little piece of controversy that opened up the whole J.K. Rowling thing as well, and and all of that.
0: And it's interesting too. uh, Really quickly, if I could, I I mean, all she did was uh, post on Instagram. Uh, solidarity as a verb uh, was uh, the, the image she posted and it had a Palestinian uh, flag on it. I mean, I, I mean, if that's anti-Semitism, I mean, we are really uh, stretching the definition.
3: Yeah, of course it is. It's ridiculous. We uh, And that's why it's important. Uh, clearly, what she is doing by posting that is showing solidarity with the struggle of the Palestinian people for basic civil and human rights. That's it. This is. That's all. It's it's it definitely is an expression of solidarity with the with the indigenous people of what we call Palestine. So, good honor.
0: So, so if you could, can you explain how do we get to this point where there's this sort of linguistic game going on where uh, you know any criticism of Israel is being you know referred to as anti semitism? Because to me, I think. And, and this is why I really liked your article I, I think it almost cheapens the fight against anti-Semitism it's actually making the fight against legitimate uh, anti-Semitism uh, much harder
1: I mean that's why we wrote the article is that it's it's is not only a deflection away from what Israel is doing but is actually cheapening the the term and and drawing attention and, and making the real, anti-Semitism that exists in the world, uh, the right-wing fascist variety, (laughs) it's making that even legitimate and normal. And I think that's one of the real dangers of this, um, that it's actually fomenting um, uh, anti-Semitism rather than just defending what Israel is doing. I mean, uh, what I think is interesting in this is, I mean, Roger has been attacked for this for for a decade now. (laughs) I mean, when you talk about people being accused of anti-Semitism falsely, uh, I mean, Roger has been at the, at the center of this for a long time because he's been so outspoken. And what, what I th- where I think we are right now is it's now so clear that they cannot defend the policies. They won't even try. They don't even try defending the policies. <laughs> All they have left is smearing the, the, the names of people who dared to raise this. For me, that's a victory. For me, that means that they cannot actually engage in a debate about what is going on. And all I have left is is this you know, is, is a smearing campaign. And it's going it's working less and less. Um when again, when people like when if someone like Emma Watson, when Hermione from you know from Harry Potter is regarded as an anti-Semite, that is making that legitimate. That is, you know, because she is for for millions and millions of people, millions and millions of young people, you know, she is a heroine. And when you're attaching this to her, it's like, well, what's, what's so wrong with with anti-Semitism if if Armani is like this? And I think that's the that's the great danger. Uh, it was interesting, you know. I had an email from someone who was uh, he's a um, he's a Jewish historian in Montreal, and he, he wrote to us after he read the article, and he said, you know, I, I agree with everything you said except for one thing. You refer to it as the unintended consequences, and he says, I think this is the intended consequences. Of Zion. the, the, the Zionists want to have anti-Semitism at a height, so that they can rally the Jewish community. For them, it's, it's, it's not fighting against it; they want to have more anti-Semitism because it works for them. Uh, so, what he said is, this is not unintended. This actually is the intended consequence, which I thought was—I haven't really looked into it. But I thought that was an—he was an historian. He said that that's what that's what they've been doing for decades. That's the official strategy.
3: That's fascinating. You know, I didn't, even when I read that and read that that was part of your response in the article, or or since then, I I was still scratching my head slightly, but it it takes one back to, um, where was it where recently the the fascists were marching around the town, literally chanting, Jews will not replace us it was is in charlotte'sville charlottesville. In, charlotte'sville in charlotte'sville exactly yeah which so that is what that, that is what this lumpy feather the definition of anti semitism actually encourages is that 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 is the point of the thing and that's interesting that the historian that you speak of the jewish historian should have should be pointing that out and saying they want that the israelis the street, you know the ministry of strategic affairs i believe they they're closing that down now they're calling it something else because it's become an object of almost of derision certainly in our community but whether whether or not that's the case i don't know but it reminds
1: um, me of you know a few years ago when there was one of these attacks against the jewish community in uh, in france uh and netanyahu went to france and was speaking at a at a synagogue and said, you know, this is like, it's really dangerous being Jews, come to Israel. And the entire congregation got up and started to, to sing the French national anthem. <laughs> In response, they said, no, we are French and Jewish. We don't have to be, we are done with, Israel is not the place where we can be Jewish. We are Jewish and French. And yeah. so there, that, that, was, that was Netanyahu trying to say, there is only one place that's safe for Jews, and that's Israel. Yeah. And that was the Jewish community, you know, rejecting that.
3: Well, he's, he was front and centre in the Je suis, Je, Je suis Chalet, in, in all those, after the massacre in, in the Charlie Hebdo um, offices in Paris and the Bataclan thing. I mean, Netanyahu practically lived in Paris for the next uh, however many weeks it was. Trying to somehow piggyback onto that and make that part of the heroic Israeli people's struggle against Iran or something, which is kind of what he tries to make
0: everything. I just wanted to add uh, really briefly, if I could, I mean, you know, it it concerns me when we see this conflation of um, criticism of Israel and, you know, this label of apartheid uh, with uh, being anti-Semitic, because, uh, you know, I, I live in Pittsburgh. I remember a few years ago, when the Tree of Life synagogue shooting happened, I I, th- I get very concerned about the issue of anti-Semitism, but I don't think that means we can't also be concerned with the plight of Palestinians. And I mean, uh, it's interesting uh, in in the article you uh, wrote uh, Sut, you have that former Israeli UN representative Danny Dannon, writing just that uh, tone deaf tweet ten points from Gryffindor for being an anti-Semite, and I, I was just. It was mine It was mine, It was minus ten points. <laughs> so, if you could, another word that comes up a lot when we talk about these issues uh, is Hasbara. So, for my listeners, if they don't know what that is, can you explain to them what uh, this sort of PR campaign is known as Hasbara? Roger, why don't,
3: why don't you go? Well, Hasbara or Hasbara is. Um, Hang on, let me think what the the literal explaining, I think, is the literal translation from the Hebrew. It's explaining. So it's a propaganda campaign. It loosely describes the whole propaganda campaign to explain to anybody who might not know that Israel is a wonderful democratic country where everybody is. Treated equally, democracy—the only democracy. I'm not going to say these words much more because it's what they do, and it's a complete lie. There is nothing democratic about Israel. It's an apartheid state, right? Where the where they have tried to get rid of the indigenous population, which at the time at at, at the beginning of the state of Israel was only 13% of the of the of the country that we're talking about. That's what is now the state of Israel and the occupied territories together, okay? They were a tiny minority. Um, And so the the Hasbeth is trying to explain that there's nothing wrong with expelling the indigenous population, a part of this planet, in order to make room for a settler colonialist invader and you know, if if they might point, for instance, to North America as a jolly good example of that, because that is what the Europeans did when they arrived, when Columbus, Columbus, and all the rest of us, and the English and the Germans and the bloody French and everybody else, and the Portuguese, and when the, the Europeans arrived, then, it's what they did, and they and and they achieved great success, except that. The societies that they have created are sick, as we can see. I know I'm digressing now, and that's a completely different subject, but the Hasbara in 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 the, that is uh, propagated by the Ministry of Strategic Affairs and other um, founts of propaganda. By the Israeli government is to explain to people that they're wonderful and everything's all right and that this is just a bunch of fanatics, terrorists. Sir is a terrorist, I'm a terrorist. Anybody who supports the Palestinian cause is a terrorist and that they have a right to defend themselves against our terrorism, which is how they couch it. That's the Hasbara, is lying. Hasbara. Is lying to the world that everything's okay. Everything is okay if, if you're a, uh, an Israeli citizen who believes in ethnic cleansing and mass murder and genocide and stealing everything from the people who were living there when you arrived, then it is all right. If that's all right, uh, it, that's what it is. Finish.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the term, the term it, it loosely refined as Roger said, is propaganda. And and we and you can trace it back again. This is not a kind of general thing. Uh, in the film that we did, "The Occupation of the American Mind," which is, by the way, it's available for free online. So if anyone just searches for "The Occupation of the American Mind," you can watch the whole thing. But we, you know, we, you can trace it back to to 1982 and the Israeli invasion of Lebanon, when they got really bad press, and at that point they decided, "Hey, okay, we have to change the propaganda." And they started to launch this campaign, which they called Hasbro, they called it the Hasbro Project. Um, that is this, I think, uh, I think they should study it in public relations schools. I think it is the most successful public relations campaign in history, whereby they have been able to invert the reality of what is going on um, in, from the river to the sea. It uh, they, they should be studied in in in, in in PR schools as a way of doing this, and it's very very specific. It's a way of of getting the Israeli official line into the mouths of American um, commentators. It that that's how that's how public that's how Hasbro works. It's not just propaganda. It's getting other people to say your words and to get out so you can get you know newscasters. To say exactly what you want to say. Um, public relations works best when it's invisible. Publicly, as soon as you can see propaganda, it stops working. And the best propaganda is invisible.
3: Can I say one, sir? Ready? <laughs> Take us back a bit, not far, but back a bit. Rockets rained down. I think that's all over the movie, is because you quite rightly and cleverly put it's in the edit, you know. Uh, speaking heads on news bulletins all over the United States going, and rockets rained out. And that's the only story that you get is this idea of Hamas and other, you know, terrorist organizations raining rockets down on the innocent Israeli people. And, and of course, and that's what they, that is the news that they were giving. And thank goodness, you're quite right, though. We have made huge strides. Strides. Though that they would still use, they used well, that, that then, just-
1: they, in the last one they did in in, in May they they yeah. used the same thing. So I, I think what we're having is we this this is kind of two st- there's two parts of this. There's the official prop, there's the official mainstream corporate you know military industrial complex media that is still operating along that dimension, and then next to it uh, is now something that didn't exist before, which is on the margins through social media and through activism you have a different narrative that is also emerging, which is why I think this is, this is a, an exciting moment where I think we're at the beginning uh,
3: beginning of this. Yeah, because they are running around like rabbits with their, or chickens with their heads cut off today. Right now in Washington, they're literally running around like chickens with their heads cut off, not knowing what to do, because this is very difficult to refute. Amnesty International, I've heard of that, aren't they? They're a human rights organisation, aren't they? They're serious, aren't they? Don't they have offices all over the world? Are they not referred to by governments everywhere and held up as a shining light of people who have proper opinions about human rights? What's right and wrong, i.e. about the moral compass that Dr. King was always going on about? The arc of the moral compass. and Well, surely we should be listening to them. They can't possibly be wrong. Can they? And that this is causing the running around with heads cut off that's going on because they can't accept it. You know, well, I'm, I often say, why can, why is it that our lords and masters, the ruling class, can never, let's call it the man, can ever, ever admit they're wrong about anything ever? They still won't admit me lie. Oh, they won't admit anything. They still don't accept Julian Assange's collateral murder film from Baghdad from 2007. They still won't let Leonard Peltier out of prison. They can't bring it to the. everybody knows the man's innocent. He's been in jail for 46 years. They cannot bring themselves to say, you know what? We were wrong. They just can't do it. You know, Biden, if he can get out of bed in the morning... Without falling over, goes and he's the same about Israel he's like completely blinkered. But Joe, the emperor has no clothes. You're naked, brother. You're completely naked. You're a total embarrassment. Everybody knows you're naked.
0: I was I was gonna say in that regard, I, I think we even see that with what what you know. I, I was talking to uh Professor Stephen Zunis uh earlier. And he was saying how it's insane how uh, even before the Amnesty International report came out, uh, it was preemptively being attacked. And you see all these Congress people attacking it, people in the Biden administration attacking it. And I have to even wonder, did they even read this 280 page report uh, or are they just getting talking points?
3: No, they didn't read it and they won't read it. They don't want to, they couldn't care less about it. They don't, they have their narrative. They know what the narrative is. They're the greatest friends of Israel. They will never waver from the path. It doesn't matter if Israel is turning into the Third Reich. I know you're not allowed to say that, but I've been saying it because it's true. So you're not allowed to say that. And they won't. They never w- would. They back off from it because they've learned a mantra. It's like learning by route, you know, which is, an, which is there's very, very little education in, in the United States of America. So you, there's no public education. Um, with all due respect to the public schools out there, where there are heroic teachers trying to do work, they get so little support. From, from government money, and so little in the way of resources, it's very difficult for your children um, to get educated. And I've forgotten where I was going, so I'll shut up. I'm <laughs> <laughs> you know,
1: sorry, yeah, I think what's happening is, I mean, again, I mean, I want to keep, uh, I, you know, there, there is the propaganda, but within the Democratic Party itself now, there is a debate. I mean, there are activists within. It's not, not only just people outside, as they used to be. There are now people within it. And I think one of the great things that Bernie did, Bernie Sanders did, was, you know, at the in the 2016 uh, primaries uh, in Brooklyn, when he actually used the term Palestinians <laughs> for the first yes. time. I think that, that, that broke something. And it's now young people uh, of all kinds, young Jews, people within the Democratic Party Party on the left, the connection with Black Lives Matter. Again, what happened last year in last May when, uh, you know, last year when, when the George Floyd protests were happening? If you looked at those protests, there were many, many Palestinian flags. And so the connection between Black Lives Matter and between Black oppression in the U.S. and Palestinian oppression is now becoming clearer and clearer. Uh, and again, all those, you know, all those liberals who are, who are Black Lives Matter signs on their lawns, they've got to now come to terms with this. They've now got to, they, the, the, what Israel is doing to the Palestinians is no longer just an issue over there. They now have to come to terms with it because this movement that they want to support, it, it has now become central to them. So it's central to it. So I actually think this is, again, we are at a very kind of muddled moment right now. There's an opportunity here. For us to kind of to kind of pull on the Gordian thread. Okay, I mean, I, I often talk about you know Israeli propaganda is like this Gordian thread. It's been so tight, it's been so powerful, um, and now there's a chance I think to pick at it, <laughs> to pick up to to start the picking process.
0: Yeah, and if I could just add to that, I, I think we're already seeing a, a sort of changing of the guard in public opinion. Not just with Emma Watson, but you even have uh, you know Mega you know, celebrity stars like uh, Roger and and also people like uh, Seth Rogen, uh, the comedians speaking out now. And I I think, you know, when people say, well, but we we believe in Israel and the self-determination, people can say, well, what about the self-determination of Palestinians? Uh, You can't erase them. And I think we are at a turning point because younger people just aren't buying it anymore. And also, you're right. I think there is a debate in the Democratic Party uh, even someone like Nancy Pelosi has sort of had to, you know, criticize APAC at times in the past year. And she's sort of cozying up now more and more uh, to uh, J Street, which is the sort of alternative Israel lobby. And whatever one may think of J Street, uh, it, it does sort of offer a, a different take on things than APAC. APAC seems more and more radical to a lot of young people.
1: Yeah, and I think that with, with with that that's just been uh, that mean a lot of activists have you know talked about that, and so there is a I think a fraying of
3: uh, of that ideology. Um, yeah, you yeah. know, it just takes so long, sir, doesn't it? Shit that's self evident, you know. We we when people come on board, I only came on board of, to this question in two thousand and six, so I've only been sort of doing this for 15 years but the 15 years goes by in a heartbeat and yet from the moment you that you stop being dead and stop being awake and go fuck me look what's happening this is disgusting 15 years can go by like that and yeah we've made progress but how does this shit not get solved and why and the answer of course is because um the system under which we all live is absolutely designed to protect itself so that nothing happens to upset the apple cart, because those apples belong to the ruling class, and they're going to well keep them to themselves, and nobody is going to get. And this is how they do it. They keep the rest of us fussing and fighting over Things that are really easy to figure out. It's not hard. If you've got that document from 1948 in front of you, and I'm not talking about the Declaration of Israel Israel as a State. I'm talking about Paris 1948 and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. If you have that document in front of you, it's pretty easy to figure out what to do next. But so much of what is going on now, right, nearly 100 years later ignores that document completely. And because the most powerful countries in the world are not signatories to the Treaty of Rome, there is no international humanitarian law except as a figment of our desires. And we do desire it. We we do. We three in this room really desire that, that, that people, all our brothers and sisters all over the world, irrespective of their religion or their colour or their nationality or anything, should have recourse to the law, and we don't. And we have, I have a lot more recourse to the law here, even in the United States, than most of the people who live in the Southern Hemisphere do. They have no recourse to the law. They they're born and they look around them and they go hang on a minute what's going on and then they work their bollocks off for the, however long it is forty or fifty years and then they die because they haven't got they don't have shelter or enough to eat they don't there's no question of them going to university or pulling themselves up by their bootstraps or any of that bullshit so how how that's one of my ongoing mantras is Paris 1948 please can we focus on that. And go? Wouldn't that be a good thing? Well, do it then, and you can ask your congressperson or your president. Or why don't you get? Why aren't you doing anything about this? Because it's really important. And please, if you please, do it for everybody in you know the in Africa. But please do it for me too. I can't. I can't pay for the fucking groceries. I'm skin. I've never had more than. $20 in maximum in my pocket ever in my life. And you think that's because I'm lazy? I'm not lazy. I'm working as hard as I can, but I can't accumulate anything because fucking Jeff Bezos has got it all on some desert island somewhere evading tax, you know, or Bill Gates or Zuckerberg or, you know, or any one of another 10 or 15. Multi, multi, multi-billionaires who actually own America. They own the government and they decide what happens. And they want, they want to be they want to be rattling their sabres at, at Putin, at Russia, over the Ukraine, which is the craziest thing any of us have lived through, with the possible exception of the Second World War. You know, if those of us who were alive then. I was just, but <laughs> so what, so yeah, so obviously we live in a world that is insane, which is why Sook does what he does and what I do, what I do and what you do, what you do, because we don't want it like that. We want it to be a sane world
0: organized
3: for the benefit of the whole of humanity.
0: Real quick, uh, because I know we're coming up on, on the 40 minute mark. I just wanted but, to can ask. I, can
1: I just say one thing, which I think is really important. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, to do with Israel. Um, uh, One of my colleagues, I have a a friend, a colleague here, Michael Clare, who is is a defense expert for the nation. Uh, And he writes about, he wrote a book called Blood and Oil, and we did a film on that. And what he argues now is that since the United States has, because of fracking, has become essentially self-dependent on oil, that the Middle East is not as important as it used to be strategically. Which is why the U.S. has kind of shifted, you know, to Asia and shifted its policy, and that is bad news now for Israel because it no longer has the geopolitical significance that it had. And so when I asked my, I asked Michael Clare, I said, "So why this focus on Israel still?" And he said, "It's all, it's almost all internal now, that there is, there is very little geopolitical advantage now." To the U.S., you know, propping up, uh, propping up Israel, and more and more, I think of the of the military are going to see this. It's like, why are we involved in in the Middle East? mode? there is no strategic value for us anymore. So I think when that happens, we're going to see the propaganda prop- just really ramping up even more. Uh, do in you term- think?
3: So do you think sir, that the clinging on is evangelical?
1: Now, Probably, so Mike, Michael Clare, who I uh, trust a lot on this. He said, "Now the now the push is all coming internal, and a lot of that, as we know, is the evangelicals, for whom Israel has to control you know the land from the river to the sea." Armageddon <laughs> the Armageddon coming happens. Yeah, okay. it's crazy. We are, we are, we are. I mean, as you keep saying, we are, we are living in these crazy times where these fanatics now are determining foreign policy, and they. Uh, because they think that's what they—they want Armageddon to come.
0: Yeah. When I mean, you could—you couldn't make this stuff up as a science fiction novel, but it's happening in in real life. No, you couldn't. I, I was just going to say, in, in that regard, I've spoken to a lot of other figures who have said the same thing. People like a uh, retired Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, who's been a great anti-war voice uh, for many years now, saying the same thing. Uh, Israel's geostrategic sin- significance to the U.S. Uh, it's not really there anymore. Uh, I just wanted to ask Roger one more question, if I could, since you mentioned uh, that you've gotten into this since 2006, I think that people's personal testimony of how they came to understand uh, the plight of Palestinians is very important. So maybe you could tell my listeners how you became aware of all of this. Well,
3: in 2006, I was doing a tour of Europe and uh, and, uh, they threw in a gig in Tel Aviv in the middle of the tour. And I didn't even notice, you know. And then I started getting emails from, from activists going, oi, we've just started a new movement, because they had, BDS had just started that year or the year before, 2005. And we'd rather you didn't go and play. in. So I had lots of conversations. I cancelled the gig, which was in Highcom Stadium in Tel Aviv. But I did do a gig, but I thought I'd be clever. And I did it in a, in a place called... Um, Wahat Asalam, which is also known as Nevis Shalom, which is an ecumenical agricultural community about halfway between um, Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, uh, where they grow chickpeas. And I did an outdoor gig there, and about 60,000 people came. And at the end of the show, it was very, very, you know, it was very, the audience loved it. Of course, there weren't any Palestinians there because they're not allowed to travel. None of them, not one. There wouldn't have been one. This would have been an absolutely 100% Jewish-Israeli audience. They loved it, of course. It was was the dark side tour, I think. Speaking of which, sir, on the wall behind you, you have got Dark Side of the Moon going up in bloody smoke. What is that? (laughs) You've got the cover of Dark Side of the Moon and it's exploded. Are you trying to tell me something? I can't, I can't even see what you're looking at. <laughs> You've got on the wall behind yeah. you, there's an equilateral triangle made out of smoke, it looks like, and it's going up into the air. It,
0: it does look like the cover of Dark Side of the Moon. <laughs> so I kind of, oh, no, this is, that was just the triangle. Sorry, it's a
3: triangle. <laughs> <laughs> right, sorry. So, anyway, I got to the end of the gig and, and in all the... <laughs> What was going on, I said, hold on a minute. You are the generation of young Israelis who are going to need to make peace with your neighbours and sort this bullshit out and blah, 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 blah. And they went from... Ah, ah, to... What's he fucking talking about? What's he talking about? What... It went completely silent as the shutters came down. So, I... And I was staggered by that. I thought, wow. What is... So I went back a year later uh, at the invitation of the UN, actually. Allegra Pacheo was the lady's name who was running UNRWA in in Jerusalem at the time. And I travelled all over the West Bank and I saw it. I saw the apartheid happening in front of my very eyes the segregated roads and all of this and that. And I went to Janine and I had long conversations with the elders up there and I started to learn about 2002 and blah, 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 and on and on and on and that was the start of my journey, only the start. And it's been a long uh, journey so far and it's going to go on. Uh, But thanks to Sir and, you know, and many, many others, you know, uh, we, we are we are we are slowly peeling the onion. Slowly, but it's, and, and it's so difficult because of the resistance from the evangelicals and from the great military industrial complex and from Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and all those arseholes and fucking Mark Zuckerberg. They're hugely resistant to anything that we ever say or do because they do not want a world order that believes in recourse to the law for the people. They want to rule the world where the only people who have access to the law are them, rich people.
0: I I think in closing, I will just say, you know, the fact that there are so many people attacking Amnesty International, attacking the BetSellan Report, attacking journalists like Emily Wilder, you know, there are elements that they're, they're scared because they know that young people and, and many others are pushing back on you know the ignoring of the plight of the Palestinian people. And I, I think, uh, as Sut as pointed out, we're seeing a change. And I want to thank both of you for the work that you've done. I suggest everyone watch the occupation of the American mind. And also, I, I want to promote real quick, if I could, uh, you're both going to be appearing at the Israel Lobby Conference uh, next month in March. And I very much look forward to that, israellobbycon.org. Uh, .org. And uh, if there's anything both of you would like to say in closing, how they can keep up with your work. I know, Roger, you have a, uh, a tour coming up. Uh, anything that I missed or you want to say in closing, uh, the floor is yours. Uh, if you want to start set, and then Roger, last word.
1: Um, I think one of the most important things that's going on right now is the B of the BDS is <laughs> the boycott part of the BDS, and Roger has been you know one of the major voices on this. Because remember what happened in South Africa when South you know so the South Africans didn't really care about sanctions. But when they stopped being able to play rugby matches and they stopped being able to play cricket, and they that's when, and I think that's what's gonna happen with Israel as well, is when they become pariahs, cultural pariahs, that's gonna make a big difference. And Roger has been at the, at the forefront of, of, you know, of, of making sure that anyone who goes to Israel, any artist who goes to Israel
3: knows what they're doing. Those are my final words. <laughs> Oh, they are. I, you know, it's like it's just that's what I was going to say. I was going to say football, 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 football. I put it in every single tweet that I write now because I really, I really strongly believe that So it's exactly right. And our friends in Israel, the Israeli public, won't take any notice of us until we say, "I'm sorry, chaps, we're not playing football with you. You are a pariah state." just like South Africa was, because he's so right. The South Africans went, what do you mean you won't play cricket with us? (laughs) What have we done? Well, we'll explain what you've done, but you better stop doing it or we will not play cricket or rugby. And now it's all out there, Proteus and, you know, let's all hug Nelson Mandela. Them out of prison, so it would be a good good way to start. Would be for the Israelis to let all the political prisoners out of their prisons, and then maybe we can stop playing football together. Not that they've been banned yet. FIFA ban Israel from all international football, please. We all take a knee every Sunday in the English Premier League against racism. We take it. Well, you won't find a more racist regime that that is the state of Israel contemporaneously. So when you take a knee every Sunday in the center circle before kickoff, you are taking a knee against Israel. You just don't know it yet. But when you do know it, you're going to say, you know what? No, you're going to follow Chowdhury and and, uh, El Neni and uh, Riyad Mahrez from Manchester City and the ones who already do accept their responsibility as human beings to support their brothers and sisters in Palestine. That's my final word.
0: I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sutjali and Roger Waters, and that you'll consider seeing them at the annual Israel Lobby Con at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. on March 3rd. 2022 IRL and Zoom tickets are still available for the conference at israellobbycon.org. Next up, the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft's Nick Cleveland Stout and Tiller Jorno join us to discuss the latest developments and revelations in the scandals of the NSO Group, the private Israeli firm responsible for the now infamous Pegasus Spyware. There's been two bombshell reports in the past week on NSO Group. Nick and Tiller will be filling us in on all the relevant details. But first, a word from one of our sponsors. This time, musician Rick Berlin author of the new book, The Big Balloon, A Love Story. Welcome to Parallax Views. Returning guest, Nick Cleveland-Stout, and first-time guest, Tiller Giorno, uh, both of whom have written a really interesting piece uh, for our friends at Responsible Statecraft, entitled Israeli Spyware Firm in hot water over alleged interest in U.S. data, CIA slash FBI links. I don't know how you want to start this. My listeners are a little bit familiar with NSO Group, but for newcomers, how would you describe this NSO Group scandal? Uh, Tiller, do you want to take that one or or Nick?
4: Yeah, I can kick us off. First of all, JG, thank you so much for inviting us today. Nick and I are so excited to be here and to explain to your listeners what we've sort of written about in relation to NSO Group in a lot of recent developments because there have been a lot of updates to NSO and their case. So just for people who aren't aware of what the NSO Group is, it's an Israeli cyber intelligence security for, for, firm um, that exports a premier product called Pegasus, which infects target phones um, and gives users complete access. And they export this license to foreign governments and those exports are approved by the Israeli Ministry of Defense. And I'm going to kick it over to Nick to sort of uh, go into some of the more recent developments, as well as a little bit more
0: about their background. I just wanted to add real quick, uh, because some people have been confused over this. People have said to me, well, Pegasus, that's the name of the the journalistic expose. I'm like, no, that's Project Pegasus. But Pegasus is the name of the, the spyware software.
4: Yes. Pegasus exactly. is the name of the spyware software and Project Pegasus is the name of the investigation launched by the Tor- University of Toronto Citizen Lab and Amnesty International um, in partnership with 17 news organizations from around the world. And though those enterprising journalists are the ones that have uncovered over 450 confirmed targeted journalists and activists around the world who, whose phones have been infected with Pegasus spyware.
5: So just to give a little bit of background about, uh, you know, what this firm is, um, what this product that they that they created uh, does. Um, so Pegasus or NSO Group was founded in um, about a decade ago and by some former uh, Israeli cybersecurity experts. Um, and uh, so Pegasus was launched in in twenty eleven. And when it was first introduced, it was sort of uh, it became a darling of many law enforcement agencies around the world. Um, notably, it helped Mexican authorities track down El Chapo. But it also became clear pretty quickly that it was um, that this that this spyware, this phishing spyware, that can infect your data, files, applications, camera, uh, even your microphone, uh, can easily be abused. Um, and so, like you, like you mentioned, most people know NSO because they sold their spyware to Saudi Arabia, um, which then used Pegasus to target people close to uh, Jamal Khashoggi, including his fiance. Um, and this obviously brought a lot of attention to NSO. Um, and the, the, the internal ethics committee um, at NSO decided that uh, they would no longer sell their, their spyware to Saudi Arabia, but pretty quickly, by early 2019, they had reversed that decision. Um, and that sort of encapsulates, I think, like this turnaround that we've been seeing with NSO Group. Um, instead of fading into obscurity due to the Hishoji scandal, then NSO has become emboldened um, in a way. And uh, yeah, like, like Taylor was saying, there, there are at least 450 cases of, of journalists, activists, dissidents. Um, in 16 different countries that have been hacked using Pegasus. um, And that includes Morocco, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Poland, Rwanda, um, and Israel itself. Uh, And then in late 2021, it was reported that there were 11 State Department diplomats uh, serving in Uganda that found Pegasus spyware on their phones. Um, And this revelation uh, seems to have led the Biden administration to place NSO on what's known as the entity list, which is essentially a list of of businesses that their actions negatively impact U.S. national security and foreign policy interests Um, And placing NSO on the entity list um, effectively bans the company from buying software components from U.S. vendors without a license. Um, And that mostly gets us up to speed with um, these two major bombshell reports from the New York Times and the Washington Post.
0: I want to get into that. But first, I was going to say, I think uh, there's even a connection between, um, you know, the deaths of journalists in Mexico in in relation to exposing drug cartel uh, materials and NSO group. I I believe there was a Pegasus spyware used against some of the journalists in Mexico.
5: Yes. Yes, that is great. I think it was one of the first reported cases um, was uh, it was in Mexico of of journalists that had their phones infected by Pegasus. I think it was in 2017.
0: So, so yeah, I'm just pointing that out because there's so many tentacles to this story. And uh, you know, it's, it's like something out of a a cyberpunk dystopian novel where, you know, this group is basically, you know, uh, doing spyware for hire. Uh, So this week though, or, or uh, maybe just last week, uh, the Washington post has reported on an account from a whistleblower, I believe Gary Miller. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that, Tiller or uh, Nick?
4: Yeah, I first want to say what, want to jump on what you said about spyware for hire. One of the things that diving into the Foreign Agents Registration Act informational materials so basically, any foreign entity that's trying to lobby the United States um, has to register under this FAIR database. And all of their informational materials basically set up their service as a paradigm that. It is vital to national security that they're able to have this surveillance. And if if journalists or activists happen to be targeted, well, that is a sacrifice we're willing to make in the name of national security. And one of the points that we really just wanted to highlight is we're national security and human rights is a false tr- false choice. We're not making anyone safer by the selective application of human rights. Which brings us to um, our indications that so. The Washington Post piece was so explosive in conjunction with the New York Times Magazine because previously in their verify links, NSO claimed that they didn't have the capacity to access United States phone numbers and that Americans weren't going to be harmed or weren't going to be able to be surveyed by this spyware. However, uh, Gary Miller, the whistleblower, who was then the vice president of Mobilium, which is a California-based company that works with cellular companies to enhance their security, was on a conference call with NSO Group where uh, a representative from NSO offered Mobilium bags, quote unquote, bags of cash to access their global communication networks. And that was really troubling because it shows that as early as 2019, when this call took place, that that NSO was trying to get access to not just phone numbers in different countries, but also um, any, any phone communication around the world. So Nick, would you like to add anything
0: to that?
5: Yeah, I can talk a little bit about the other uh, sort of bombshell report that came out um, just a few days before the Washington Post um, report, which basically is that um, the the main takeaway is that the FBI had been testing um, a version of Pegasus called Phantom, which provided a workaround for Pegasus not being able to target American phones. Um, and so that testing went on for, according to the New York Times magazine, for a couple of years um, before the FBI ultimately decided that that they that they weren't going to purchase um, Phantom. But there was a long internal debate um, both at, at the Department of Justice and FBI uh, during which the FBI paid reportedly around five million dollars, um, racking up fees and in, in testing this this technology. Um, so it, it's so that's that's a pretty major report because, um, you know, given that the Biden administration last November said that they replaced placed NSO group on the entity list, it's a, it's a pretty big break from sort of previously flirting with using the technology on in American law enforcement itself. Um, And there were some other important revelations in, in that report as well from the New York times, including that the U S government arranged and paid for the government of Djibouti, uh, in East Africa to obtain Pegasus, uh, despite its egregious human rights record.
4: I would also add, add, Nick, for all of the bombshell reporting that was done, there's still a big gap in the reporting as to why the Justice Department and the FBI ultimately decided to forego using this spyware. Um, they reportedly decided to not pursue Phantom around the time that Project Pegasus launched in mid July. So um, there, again, there's no explicit reporting as to why these decisions were made. And I would love to know if anybody has any information on that, because it would be very interesting to hear and understand whether this is something that was a one-time flirtation with surveillance, or if it's part of a much longer effort that will basically be be the FBI trying to implement surveillance of United States citizens to quote-unquote advance national security, which should be said, has been a justification in our post 9-11 world for a lot of bad behavior.
0: I, I was going to say it's interesting that, uh, you know, the U.S. has sort of uh, taken a strong stance seemingly against NSO and, and this Pegasus spyware just because, I mean, there is such a huge battle over, uh, you know, the world's most powerful uh, cyber weapon. Uh, the New York Times has a whole article about that with that exact title, and everyone is scrambling uh, to win this tech game because that's probably in a lot of ways the future of warfare. The future of warfare is in many ways uh, going to be fought in cyberspace in a lot of ways. So do you think that one of the reasons for maybe US sentiment on uh, Pegasus and the NSO group has to do with uh, not liking that this is getting into you know anyone's hands uh, who pays NSO group? I don't know if you guys can speculate on that, but- I. I just wanted to get your thoughts.
4: Yeah, I can take a stab at it. Um, I am currently reading The Perfect Weapon by David Sanger. And this is a paradigm he sort of explores a lot is this almost levels the playing field, whereas the United States spends? you know, we just approved a $778 billion budget in um, in at the end of last year to beef up our military hardware and equipment, which is an enormous sum. But smaller countries like North Korea are able to sort of deploy and develop these cyber weapons for a much, much smaller sum. But to me, it doesn't make sense that the way that we are going to combat this spyware getting into the hands of adversaries and allies alike is to ramp up mass surveillance, not of our adversaries and allies, which is already taking place, but that we need to bring this and look at um, everyone in the United States, regardless of whether they are a criminal or are just suspected because we we know that people can can basically bring up whatever justification they're they're looking for. Nick, I don't know if you have anything to
0: add. Well, I, I was going to say real quick that the reason I brought that up is I had one listener that was uh, saying, "Oh, you know, it's the U.S. is only going after this now because you know uh, I think it was at least 11 State Department diplomats serving in Uganda found Pegasus spyware on their phones, and I can understand that cynicism.
4: Yeah, you know, it's one thing when you're surveilling other people, but it's a whole lot less fun when somebody's infected your own phone, right?
5: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, that's absolutely right. Um, it, I mean, it, before it was always kind of like this, this uh, you know, abstract thing, something that happened over there, something that didn't happen here. And that's why I think the, the U.S. government was able to uh, sort of ignore it or sweep it under the rug for so long, especially considering um, that that Israel is an ally of the U S and, but, but once it became clear that, that it wasn't something that was happening uh, just in, in foreign countries, once it was clear that it was being used by um, governments to attack diplomats um, using a workaround um, by targeting their local numbers in Uganda. um, And once it, and combined with this, this whistleblower uh, report that, that NSO was, was clearly trying to access uh, the, the, this global communications network uh, through Mobilium, then that's when the U.S. government decided to step in and do something about this and um, seemingly place it on the entity list. Although, like Taylor said, it's impossible to know for sure.
0: And I want to note too. So when we talk about um, NSO Group as an Israeli firm, uh, it, it is, a, to my understanding, a, a private firm though, right? it's not it's not like it's run by the state
4: that's correct however in order for nso to export licenses of their spyware or any other any other military grade product to another foreign government it does have to be approved by the israeli ministry of defense which nso has used repeatedly in fara filings to justify that they are basically that they have an extra layer of of protection that they have somebody else who's looking at these sales and they aren't entirely culpable for it getting into the hands of bad actors.
5: Yeah, it's I, I think that uh, there was a, a line of the New York Times piece that really jumped out at me um, that said that because uh, because uh, because the Israeli government decides which governments NSO is able to uh, sell to. In some ways, it functions as an arm of Israeli foreign policy. Um, and you actually see this, uh, there's, some people have been calling this Pegasus diplomacy, um, this concept of NSO selling uh, their products to foreign governments, and then those governments eventually uh, giving more favorable votes towards, towards uh, Israeli foreign policy in, in international bodies such as the United Nations uh, and the European Union.
0: And I was going to say it's it's interesting, Uh, you know, the the PR firm that represents NSO Group. um, I think Pillsbury Winthrop Shaw Pittman they've said, oh no, NSO uh, it's a force of good for the world, and it only sells spyware to governments in the coalition of Western democracy-led countries. But that does not seem to necessarily be the case.
5: No, definitely not. I mean, looking at the list of of countries mentioned there, I mean, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia, Morocco, the UAE. Um, you know, they're not exactly countries that are that are known for their democratic governance, although um, they do
0: get U.S. support.
5: <laughs> yes, yes, that is that is true. Um, but, yeah, on, on that note, it's also uh, interesting to note that that uh, NSO Group has also added a new firm to um, they've, they've added a new uh, PR firm, basically, to um, try to turn around all of this negative publicity. Um, and. Known as the Charwell Strategy Group in a two hundred fifty thousand uh, dollar contract, so it seems like they're trying. to It seems like they recognize that there's a lot of negative press about about NSO Group right now, and they're trying to do everything they can to sort of turn the tide in their favor.
4: And to to further add to this um, this PR storm theory, there was also a, another PR firm called Mercury Public Affairs who. NSO had basically retained for $150,000 a month in between um, January 2021. And when the firm ultimately split with NSO Group in November 2021, right before uh, the firm was placed on the entity list, they had filed over 99 pieces of fair informational material, mostly responding in a similar fashion to things that you noted to Project Pegasus, basically saying, we don't know anything about this. We only sell to countries that are beacons of democracy. If only Citizen Lab would share its data with us, then we could address the problem. And actually, these journalists are the ones at fault because they're the ones that are basically giving a playbook on how to avoid surveillance to terrorists and child trafficking rings and other bad actors. So it's actually these journalists who are who are allowing bad actors to, to flourish in this world by pursuing this project, which is... Kind of enough to make somebody's
0: stomach turn. Now, who are the players in the U.S.? Because we've talked about uh, how this technology has been used by uh, Saudi Arabia. We've we've talked about how it's been used against uh, journalists in Mexico, uh, but it's also gotten indirect investment from the state of Oregon.
5: Yeah, so Oregon became the largest indirect investor um, in in NSO Group because they they have a large sum of money. Um, upwards of, I think, 200 million in this um, UK-based uh, firm, Novolpina. Um, and interestingly enough, so they, they invested that, um, I think, in 2018. Um, and then in 2019, Novolpina uh, decided to buy a majority uh, stake in NSO Group. And that was with the tacit approval of Oregonian officials. So there's a clear um, you know, Israeli creepy Israeli spyware firm is not really what you think of when you think of um, of Oregon, of the state of Oregon. Um, but it is true that the the pension fund specifically uh, is a major investor in NSO Group.
0: Do you want to add to that at all, uh, Tiller?
4: Oh yeah, I was just going to say, and this, of course, with the the flurry of what are we going to do about the United States and the government's relationship with um, NSO in the wake of its addition to the entity list. John Russell, who is the chairman of the Oregon Investment Council, defended the decision to basically not divest from the questionable sectors um, because it would exceed the council's mandate and turn it into an activist body. But our argument is that the decision to remove funding from from this group, this entity that has sold to governments that have used it to commit atrocious human rights abuses that have resulted in the death of at least one journalist is not an activist decision, but it's one of placing foreign policy at the heart of our foreign policy. And that's why we really wanted to advance um, Senator Wyden's proposal to place NSO under the Global Magnitsky Act, because it would freeze assets it would prevent um, executives in the company from traveling. And most importantly, it would cut off funding from the United States to this company. So it would make it a lot harder for them to operate because they do rely on funding from the United States to sustain their operations.
0: Could you fill that in for my listeners? You mentioned the Global Magnitsky Act. If I have listeners that are unfamiliar uh, with the whole story of the Magnitsky Act and the Global Magnitsky Act, maybe you could uh, fill them in on that.
5: Yeah. So the original Magnitsky Act um, stemmed from the murder of um, a, a bodyguard of uh, bill Browder in in Russia um, who was tortured and killed. Um, and after that, then then Bill Browder uh, began lobbying for uh, some some sanctions bill, something to be done to specifically target the Russian officials uh, that were responsible for for that assassination. You know, sort of as a counter to these very broad-based economic sanctions that I think we traditionally see in American foreign policy. Um, and he specifically, uh, I believe lobbied. I believe it was John McCain um, who introduced the original Magnitsky Act, um, which was again centered specifically around this one instance. Um, but then I think in 2016 it was that the Global Magnitsky Act was passed, which was basically uh, a recognition of. Um, oh, and I should say, so uh, the, what the Magnitsky Act does is it allows the U.S. government to uh, freeze assets held in U.S. banks of individuals. Um, and also impose uh, visa bans. Uh, so, for a lot of people that that have uh, that have money in U.S. banks or or vacation or have a second or third home in the U.S., then it's a pretty significant uh, step, and, and it's and it's often favored um, by by policymakers for the for the reason that it is much more targeted than these um, sort of broad based economic sanctions that I think increasingly we see. Uh, impact people at the bottom rather than the people at the top. Um, and so the Global Magnitsky Act was was, um, was Congress's way of, of expanding that, not just to Russia, but to any entity or individual um, or company worldwide that is deemed to be harming American uh, national interests.
0: I just wanted to add real quick. I've always found it interesting. Uh, you know, I, I think a lot of us uh, that cover foreign policy issues talk about sanctions, and I think sometimes you know, I've had listeners that are that are sort of uh, new to the topic or or laymen to the topic. Uh, and I think sometimes people don't realize that there is a sort of debate out there about uh, you know, should we have these sort of generalized sanctions, which we've seen what they have done to countries like Iraq and Iran and Venezuela, uh, but there's also these targeted sanctions uh, which would target specific individuals and organizations.
5: Yeah, and so we should make it clear, I mean, what we're, what what Wyden's proposal is here is is uh, to place and the NSO group um, along with three I believe three other companies that, that uh, they mention under under these targeted sanctions. Um, you know, as an alternative to as you mentioned, um, you know, uh, the the sanctions policy towards Iraq uh, in the nineties, which led to some estimates of one million dead civilians, which uh, Madeline Albright just sort of brushed aside. Um, you know, looking at also uh the impact that the sanctions have in Iran today or, or Venezuela um, sort of only serving to further entrench uh, the, the leaders of these countries um, not at all in in the in the US's interest uh, to push these people farther and farther away, isolating them farther and more likely to um, oppose the U.S and uh, American foreign policy. So again, Biden's proposal is, is just to, to place NSO group uh, specifically, uh, you know, this one individual firm rather than uh, an entire country, an entire economy um, under sanctions.
4: I will add to that, Nick, that it doesn't necessarily completely isolate um, the government of Israel from this entire debate. After, after the Commerce Department added NSO to the entity list, the Ministry of Defense in Israel announced that they would attempt to lobby the Biden government on behalf of the NSO group to have it removed from the list. The results of that lobbying either haven't played out or haven't really been reported on, but it definitely was a point of tension between the United States and Israel um, at the end of last year.
0: I was going to say, too, and Wyden isn't the only congressman that is concerned about this
5: uh, Pegasus spyware and uh, NSO Group's dealings, correct? No, th- those are that's just my biases showing through because again, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm an Oregonian. But no, uh, he proposed it along with, with Adam Schiff. Um, from California. 12 other Demo- yeah, Adam Schiff, um, chair of the House Intelligence Committee um, from California. Uh, also 12 other Democratic lawmakers. I believe uh, Gregory Meeks is on there. Um, and also... Uh, I think Ted Liu, Representative Ted Liu, has taken a, a deep interest in this as well. He uh, was actually the lawmaker that um, the whistleblower from Mobilium contacted um, to report the, the offer to buy up global uh, communications networks for bags of cash.
4: Yeah, and he has requested that the Department of Justice investigate this whistleblower complaint because it should be said, Miller made this, this tip to the FBI in 2017 when this call took place and it was never followed up on. So Representative Flew would like the Department of Defense or Department of Justice to investigate this quote unquote fishy behavior. Although we really chose to focus on the Global Magnitsky Act sanctions because it has it's it's an act that has more teeth and is able to sort of enforce and actively cut off funding on a global scale for this company that's committed human that has sold its spyware to governments that have used it to commit human rights abuses.
0: The NSO's chairman uh, actually, I think, resigned recently. Uh, and I guess he has said, you know, this decision's unrelated uh, to all the scandals the NSO group has been implicated in. But uh, it, that's pretty interesting timing. And also, uh, this phantom spyware software, I, I wanted to talk about those two things.
4: Yeah, well, let's start with the. Chairman Asher Levy stepping down. Um, I will say this, Nick and I actually rewrote, wrote and rewrote this article a few times. Our initial reporting wanted to cover um, the first comprehensive list compiled by Heretz of the 450 confirmed targeted cases around the world, as well as recent developments that the Israeli police had used it not only to target civilians, but also mayors and that a human rights watch official in the Beirut office's phone had been infected. But we had to pull a lot of that from the piece in the light of the recent developments related to the New York Times Magazine, um, which, you're right, came out two days after Chairman Levy announced that he was going to step down. We have no um, official reports or confirmation because he did say that he decided to leave for reasons unrelated to, the, uh, to NSO's many controversies but it is very, very convenient timing that two days before both New York Times Magazine and Washington Post stories came out that he took his leave. And then Nick, if you wanna talk a little bit more about Phantom and sort of building off that Washington Post uh, revelation. Um, I don't know, JG, if you had any specific questions about that specific.
0: Well, I, I was just, gonna just ask, what, what is uh, the, the Phantom spyware? Because I guess uh, it's reported That it could transform american smartphones into intelligence gold mines
5: yeah so um phantom was is basically create was basically the uh new system created by nso group to provide a workaround for uh, one of these one of these lines that that uh the the pr firms that we alluded to earlier have consistently put out about nso group which is that nso group does not target or, or excuse me that that Pegasus cannot be used to target uh, American phone numbers. Um, And so to to get around that, uh, to basically not lie to themselves about that, they created this other system called Phantom.
4: And the only client that NSO Group supposedly has offered Phantom spyware to was the United States government, specifically the FBI. Um, However, this really goes back to both what I said at the beginning where a lot of times national security interests can trump human rights concerns. And what you said later about, you know, the battle for the most powerful cyber weapon it's, it's now out there, this phantom spyware that is able to target us phones. So in the United States relentless push to try to win this cyber surveillance warfare, it has led to the development and who knows, maybe there could be demand out there, but, um, by other agents and, and agencies or governments that would like to, to hack United States phone numbers. And now, because in the name of national security interests, we push for this surveillance technology. It is, it is out there in, in the world and being proliferated. And it really does kind of require international cooperation on a global scale to try to, try to rein this in and have some kind of arms control for our cyber weapons that is going to be the preeminent battlefield, like you said, in the coming decades.
5: I think that's a really important point. And um, something that we mentioned in the piece is that uh, if the U.S. is the only country to place NSO group under the Global Magnitsky Act, it'll be impactful, but not quite as impactful if the U.S. also gets its allies um, to place the NSO group under their versions of the Global Magnitsky Act. Um, Because something that a lot of countries did in the wake of, of the U.S. passing their version of the Global Magnitsky Act is they uh, took their own versions of of that and passed it in their own domestic uh, their own domestic law uh, that is basically a carbon copy of, of the Magnitsky Act. Um, and so, it, you know, if the U.S. pressures the U.K., for instance, to uh, do the same, then that'll be very impactful. Especially considering that Novell Pina, um, the firm that has a, a major uh, stake in NSO Group, is based in the U.K.
0: Real quick, is is the Phantom? Uh, spyware is it any different from the Pegasus spyware? Is it like like is it more advanced or is do we not know or is it just uh, like you said? Is it just a workaround for you know other things?
5: From from what we understand from the New York Times reporting, it's it's pretty much just a workaround. Um, they don't go into too much specific too many specifics about. Um, you know how it differs from Pegasus. Uh, what we do know is that it's just it's it's more or less a version of Pegasus, uh, you know, that uses the the same uh, spear phishing technique of these highly personalized messages um, to get past encrypted uh, softwares um, that that has the sole distinction of being able to target American numbers.
0: And uh, last thing here. Uh, I know you mentioned that uh, a former UN, Special Rapporteur, I think, uh, is it David Kay? Yeah, David Kay, uh, who's a Special Rapporteur, was a Special Rapporteur on uh, the issue of um, freedom of, of, of speech, uh, freedom of expression as a basic human right. Uh, do we know anything about how the UN in general is looking at this? Is it just uh, this former Special Rapporteur or are there elements of the UN that are concerned about this?
4: Yeah, actually, that is definitely something that I would like to look further into. I haven't heard of any prominent reports, but it is definitely an issue that's being addressed on the global stage. But it's mostly being led by um, independent organizations like Amnesty International or, like I said, um, the University of Toronto's Citizen Lab. But I haven't seen any specific reporting about or any, any statements from the United Nations. Nick, I'm not sure if you've seen anything.
5: Uh, I haven't. Um but it is important to note also that there is a major uh, roadblock in the UN being able to do something about it because of the Pegasus diplomacy uh, that we alluded to earlier. Um, For instance, uh, you know, there's, there's sort of this network of, of, of people that, that, uh, that, that they have been selling their, their, uh, that that they have been selling Pegasus to that then is now voting favorably towards Israel in the UN. Um, One example is that when the, When when the Israeli Defense Ministry licensed the sale of Pegasus to Hungary, um, then Orban uh, deployed the hacking tools on opposition figures, social activists, um, but then Orban in turn became Israel's devoted supporter in the European Union um, and was was one of the few countries to not speak out against Israel's plan to uh, unilaterally annex uh, swaths of the West Bank. So we're kind of seeing stuff like that um, pop up. You know, not just with with Hungary, but also with India, with Poland, um, with with sort of this network of of countries and governments that are interested in the software and likely won't be as vocal about it at international organizations such as the United Nations um, for the purpose for for the sole reason that they themselves are are using this this uh, weapon.
0: So then, in closing, uh, you know, it, it, I, this feels like a story of. Um... You know, some uh, a Pandora's box being opened. What what can really be done to deal with this issue of you know, I, I mean, cyber weapons being sold to the highest bidder. It seems like a, a nightmare.
4: Yeah, my my hope is that we get to a a point in our international dialogue and our international diplomacy where we understand that we're not advancing national security by allowing allies or adversaries to trample on human rights. Because right now it seems like every country is sort of pursuing their own cyber warfare agenda, and we would definitely need to come together um, in these large international organizations or within alliances to have a firm understanding of how as blocks of, um, of of nations and states in this international order, we would like to conduct cyber warfare. Um, just like there is international human rights law dictating laws of warfare, we would need something to encompass what we can and can't do in terms of cyber warfare.
0: Well, I think this is going to be uh, an ongoing story. And uh, is there anything I missed or that you guys want to mention uh, just final word goes to both of you.
5: Well, I'll just say that, um, you know, NSO Group is a firm that 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 has a lot of attention. There's a lot of attention on it right now, and for good reason. Um, but like we were talking about earlier, it goes way beyond just one Israeli firm. Um, just to mention a couple of the other uh, firms that, that the widen and shift proposal mentioned, there's also uh, a company called Dark Matter, which according to an investigation by Reuters, hacked into the devices and accounts of human activists and journalists, including Americans on behalf of the UAE. Um, there's Nexa Technologies, uh, which according to an investigation by the French news organization, uh, Media Part, sold bulk internet monitoring technology to the governments of Egypt and Libya. Um, I mean, the list goes on and on. And the point that I just want to illustrate with that is, is that it's not uh, you know, we need to get our house in order with regards to this one Israeli organization, and that will sort of solve the problem of um, surveillance. No, it goes way beyond that. And also, obviously, uh, the, the U.S. government itself has a lot of problems with with its own domestic surveillance on Americans, um, given the the Snowden revelations, um, but then also, uh, you know, exemplified by the FBI's flirting with NSO groups. Um, technology uh, in considering buying phantom for uh, its own domestic use. So I think that, you know, there has to be, you know, like, like Taylor said, um, we need to come to a place where we recognize that on both counts, both on the counts of, of human rights and national security, um, this kind of surveillance isn't advantageous to America or Americans. It doesn't advance the interests um, of everyday Americans. Um, And so we need to be Clear about that and send a real, real message about that, um, and that involves, like Taylor said, international alliances, but also passing far stronger um, domestic laws. Uh, the U.S.'s uh, domestic laws around privacy aren't nearly adequate enough. The Fourth Amendment has been in recession for quite some time now, um, and I think that the U.S. could look to a, a uh, you know, the GDPR at the European Union and stuff like that for passing its own uh, stronger data protection laws. Um, to to sort of mitigate instances like this happening in the future, um, yeah.
0: Well, I want to thank uh, both of you for coming on the show. How can my listeners keep up with your work?
5: Well, luckily, it's the same answer for both of us because we're we're both um, working on some foreign influence projects at the Quincy Institute right now. Uh, we have a report coming out uh, with with Ben Freeman um, on the Ukraine lobby coming out soon. Um, you know, you can read our piece on on the oh, MSO oh, group. Oh,
0: not not to interrupt you, I, w- I was going to say, so you guys are going to be continuing the work Ben was doing at, uh, I, I think it was Center for International Policy. I was wondering what was going to happen with the uh, foreign uh, influence work he was doing there. I guess uh, he shifted over to Quincy now, which is great.
4: Yeah, so I was working with Ben at the Center for International Policy last fall and moved over to the Quincy Institute with him. And I can say that his, his work is going to continue uninterrupted and he's really dove full steam ahead on continuing his foreign influence work, which really plays into a lot of how we were able to dig into this story and understand um, NSO group's attempts to, to influence the U.S. and basically cast itself as the good actor and, and things like that. Um, but your listeners can also keep it up with us on Twitter, where we will be tweeting all things, um, arms and security, national security, foreign influence. Mine is Taylor M. Giorno. And Nick, yours is?
5: Mine is Nick underscore Cleveland S, I think.
0: Thank you again, Taylor and Nick, for coming
5: on Parallax Views.
0: Thank you so much for having
4: us.
5: Yeah, thank you.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Nick Cleveland-Stout and Tiller Journo of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. That, of course, brings us to the conclusion of this weekend edition of Parallax Views. As always, if you can, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again... That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. There's everything from a $1 tier to a dollars tier, $5, $10, and $15 tier in between, and at the $10 tier and above, you get a Producers Credit Shout out. So producers credit shout-outs to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, the Warnerd, the 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland. Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Colin, Matthew Ho, and the Mirror Framework. That's Mirrors for Earth's Energy Rebalancing, a project headed up by Dr. Ye Tao that is focused on providing solutions to our climate change crisis. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, well then consider joining those listeners in supporting me at the $10 tier or above of my Patreon page at, again, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time... You've been listening to Parallax Views with J.G. Views To Parallax Views with J.G. Views. The way out is not
2: simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit it. If nothing else,
1: if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront